welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Mental Podcast. This is episode 129 and this week I'm really delighted to say that my guest is Richard Maybe, who is a naturalist, a writer and a broadcaster who has been writing about the natural world for more than 50 years and he's considered by many to be the father of modern nature writing. His first book, Food for Free, was published in 1972 and a really interesting fact about that book is that it's never actually been out of print. And since then, he's written more than 30 books. And one of Richard's most critically acclaimed books, Flora Britannica, was published in 1996. And it was after this seminal work, at the age of 61, that he experienced a breakdown. And the depression that followed would last for two years. And during this time, he fell out of love with the natural world. And he was unable to write about it. And after some time in hospital, Richard moved to Norfolk to be cared for by friends and he slowly started to write about his new surroundings and his recovery in real time. And this work became the memoir Nature Cure, which was published in 2005. And in this episode, I chat to Richard about his early years and how his interest in the natural world began. We talk about his life and his experiences with mental ill health. And we chat about the series of events that led to his two years of depression and how he came back from it. We also chat about the way that nature is typically viewed by society, particularly with regards to its impact on mental health. And why looking at the natural world, as Richard puts it, as this kind of green Prozac that is solely there to make us feel better. Why that might not be the most useful way to think about it. We chat about feeling things deeply and how that can influence creativity. We talk about medicalizing human emotions and we talk about why we need to appreciate all aspects of nature and not just the nice bits, you know, not just the bits that suit us. And it was an absolute pleasure to chat to Richard about his life and his work and his mental health. I'd actually heard about Nature Cure and I got it out from our local library and I sent Richard an email before I'd read it and we kind of went back and forth via email and we organised this conversation and then in that gap before we recorded I read the book and it was really interesting because I reached out before I read the book thinking that I knew what I was going to be reading if that makes sense. So I kind of had a feel for what this conversation was going to be and it turns out the book wasn't what I thought it was and that's quite a common misconception with this book. So by the time I did speak to Richard, it turns out we had a very different conversation altogether. And I'm really glad we did because it was great to just kind of get Richard's ideas around nature and the natural world and how we see it in relation to our mental health. You know, he's been paying attention to nature and observing nature and writing about it for more than 50 years. And that just gives him such incredible insight. And yeah, he's a lovely, lovely man. And this is a lovely, lovely conversation. And I'm incredibly grateful to Richard for his time. If you're interested in reading any of Richard's books, you can get them wherever you get your books from. I've put a link in the episode notes to his website where there's more information about him and about his work. He really has had a fascinating life. And I 
definitely recommend doing a bit of reading up on, on Richard and some of the things that he's done over the years. And of course, if you want to get hold of me, all the best ways to get hold of me are in the episode notes as well. If you have a minute to review this episode or any other episodes of the podcast, it would be very much appreciated. And I think that's everything I've got to tell you this week. So let's get to it. This is episode 129 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Richard Maybe. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Richard Maybe. How are you, mate? Hello. I'm fine. Oh, mate. Thank you very much for joining me today. Are you um are you coming live from um from Norfolk, Richard? Are you still based in Norfolk? Yeah, that's right. We're in South Norfolk here. Um pouring with rain as it has been for the last week. But um <laughs> that's that's East Anglia for you. That's it. Yeah, I actually grew up in East Anglia as it goes, Richard. Okay, I, we're um, well, uh, lower staffed. Oh, low staffed, yes. I was there for my uh, my teenage years, my formative years, shall we say, <laughs> is uh, is lower staffed. But um, yeah, lovely um, lovely part well, of the world. I had a lot of my formative years on the North Norfolk coast, so uh, perhaps later formative years than yours, but uh, they were <laughs> still they were still very formative. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Where are you from originally, Richard? Where um, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in the Chilterns, um, in on the Hertfordshire Buckinghamshire border. Um, right. And I spent most of the first sort of three quarters of my life there. So, um, and uh, began discovering East Anglia in my teenage years. And it was all, it's always been my second home and uh, moved up here permanently uh, about 20 years ago. Where does your, um, where does your interest for the, the natural world start, Richard? Did that start with you in, in childhood? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it, it, it's been so much a part of my life that, um, I'd very, I'd find it very difficult to say when or how it started. Um, we lived on the edge of a market town in the Chiltern, so the natural world was almost very available. And uh, what we, in, in, the, in the days when parents weren't paranoid about children going, going wild, um, we spent most of our time out there. So it was, uh, um, forgive the pun, it was second nature um to be out there and uh, did you find as you kind of the more time you spent outdoors and, and running around you know when did you start to notice sort of um well I suppose notice is the right way of saying it you know to m more observe the the natural world in action because I think there's one thing to be like running around as part of it right as young people um but then there's another thing to start sort of uh, the depths of which you've um started to study the the natural world is there a, a time and place where you started to become really kind of more tuned into what was going on around you yeah i guess it was um i mean i've, I've never really been a studious scientific naturalist i've always teetered between being a romantic poet um and a naturalist so uh i i, I never kind of sat down um and and studied um sepals and whatever it, it, it was more holistic than that but i suppose Probably when I was a teenager, um, my, my elder sister um, was a very keen naturalist um, and she used to take me out, took me to places um, and uh, began to learn quite a lot about birds. Um, the plants that I eventually began to kind of home in on as, as being the area of, of that that I would be most fascinated by, I mean, didn't really start until 
I guess, my mid-twenties. And uh, that was a complicated route to, to that happening, which is to do with, with Norfolk in a way, because um, when, I, when, when I was about, I suppose, 25 or so, um, I'd come out of university, um, I was in a teaching job, um, and I'd been a writer since the age of about seven. So um, I was very keen that that would become an important part of my life. And um, when, when we were spending uh, university holidays and weekends and whatever up on the North Norfolk coast, um, I became fascinated by this uh, local habit of eating seashore plants, um, which eventually became the subject of my first book, Food for Free. Um, and um, it, it, it was from that that um, I got kind of turned on to plants. In, in the first instances, uh, their place inside human culture, but um, not terribly much later, the fact that they were individual beings in their own right um, and needed to be looked at with uh, as subjects with, uh, with agency. Um, and it's been the, the dialogue between those two things, um, plants and the natural world generally as part of human culture, but also um, a dominion, a community that is getting on with its own life that I think most of my, my writing has been focused on. Yeah, like a, a lot of, it seems a very sort of observing in your work, Richard, you know, like rather than inserting yourself into nature, it's much more about watching nature kind of do its thing and almost reporting back. Have I kind of uh, got the right understanding of that to some extent? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much it talks back. I mean, that's not something I, I expect of it. Oh, I mean, sort um, of you you reporting back to us, rather. Oh, I see. We're yeah, seeing, okay, it, seeing yeah. it through your eyes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, 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 I think the, the, the relationship between, that I find, and I, I have been trying to write about, I suppose, for the last few years, um, about the relationship between us and the beings of the natural world. Forgive me using that word, but as soon as you accept that um, uh, there are organisms out there that are living their own lives regardless of us. Um, I think it's reasonable to call them, call them beings. Um, I, I think that neighborliness um, is a good parameter on, on, on which to try and, it's so difficult to talk about the natural world because we automatically fall into subject object um, sentences. Um, uh, it, it's the way our language is structured. We do things to other things. And to get beyond that, to, to where all kinds of things, all kinds of beings are doing things simultaneously for their own kind is something that it's actually quite difficult to fit into our, our language structure. But I mean, it, I, th I think the, uh, the, the concept of neighborliness, that um, there are other beings out there that are sharing weather, environment, all kinds of basic living hopes for survival and friendship um, is good. And one of the things about neighbours is they don't have to be neighbourly back to you. Um, I can remember when, when this, this, this kind of occurred to me, we, we had a guy up the road who, who was uh, in, 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 in some trouble and um, the whole street cared a great deal about him, though I don't think he cared a toss about the rest of us. Didn't matter, you know, that's neighbourliness for you. And I, I, I feel that about, um, you know, the local barn owls, which I've written about a lot, that um, they're indifferent to me. And we stare each other out occasionally, and they're very conscious of me. 
but I haven't the remotest idea what their thought processes might be. But uh, they they live in the same parish. Um, they experience the same sort of, of stuff as I do. Um, we both we both suffer very badly in bad weather. I'm 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 a fair weather guy. I tell you, Tom, um, I, I'm not one of these people who who enjoys the wonders of, uh, of snowfalls and whatever. I like being warm and I like the sun on my back. And I know that barnhouse do as well. So, I, you know, I, I, I can wave to them and say, yeah, it's a good day for both of us. And um, <laughs> yeah, they, I think there's, there's something really um, like kind of comforting about, you know, the natural world is just, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just doing its thing, right? Regardless of us. And, you know, we're quite, as a, as a human species, we're very egotistical and we like to kind yeah, of, um, yeah. you know, think that things are happening uh, like for us or because of us or to have some part in us. But nature really doesn't care, does it? It's just, no, 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 it's no, just no. out there out there doing what it would be doing if we were here or not right and what about the sort of um the mental health stuff Richard you know when did I know like in the, the nature cure book that where you kind of write a little bit about your experiences but before that the big episode in that book was there anything um you know was there anything on the on the way through your life when did these things first start to happen for you uh I, I've always been um what, what it used to be called when I was a kid was highly strung um that is um, I, I, I tend to overreact to things. Um, I get psychosomatic illnesses. I've had those right throughout my life. Uh, periods of, of mild depression, which eventually became a big one. Always been a very anxious person. Suffer from separation anxiety in, in completely irrational situations. So yeah, it's been a, been a, a theme in my life and uh, I, I, I don't begrudge her that's just who I am and I hope it wasn't medicalized until it had to be when I had a you know those two years of, of really quite serious depression mm-hmm. um so yes I I I, I have form <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that um I identify with that quite a lot Richard you know um and um yeah being highly strung or a highly emotional a highly emotional person yeah I think a lot of people will um will yeah I mean it's understand a, that. I remember my, my my GP on one of the occasions we we did actually talk about that I mean he did actually point out that he said that's the uh that's a that's the toll you pay for being a sensitive person he said you get the pluses from it you can write um you have great degree of of empathy with other people and he said you know the the flip side of that is you feel it inside yourself as well. I've always, in a sense, been reconciled to to uh, being that way. And I, you know, it's uh, it's okay. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful way to think about it, you know. And I often, when I speak to people who here on this podcast who are creative, whether that be writing or music or art or anything, mm-hmm. you know, I often like to ask them: Do you, is there is there a parallel? Is your ability to create in the way that you create also means that you have to feel things in a certain way? And I think you've just sort of answered that question for me in a mm-hmm. um, in a really in a great way. But you mentioned there is seeing it as as part of yourself well i think acceptance is massive when it comes to managing our own um mental health and maybe trying to change these these things or to you know wish they as much as sometimes we might wish that they weren't happening but that acceptance and saying that this is me and sometimes i experience these things that's that's quite huge isn't it to sort of keeping well and keeping safe i think so yeah i mean uh it, 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 it's been it's been what i've tried to do no like no, no. I'm sure we all fail dismally, you know, when you're having a bad patch, um, 
it's not very easy to go back into yourself and say, yeah, well, that's just the way I am. You know, a very strong part of you says, I wish it wasn't how I am. Um, but, you know, on reflection, you, you, you uh, adjust to it and accept it. And I think that as a, a balancing act between, um, you know, an overall sensitivity, um, accepting a bit of the, of the bad effects of that is, is, is very good. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that, Richard. Yeah, very, um, very much so. You know, the the sort of the two year period that you were um particularly ill. Did you see that coming? Was there any sort of build up to that, or was that a, a sort of out of the blue for you? Yeah, it it, it crept up on me, um, and I I still <laughs> I still have actually no real idea about why it happened you know i i can make all kinds of hypotheses about things that were or were not happening in my life um you know, it was the end of a period of very very intense work in which i hadn't got a, a, any clear follow-up um but i think much more to do with being having been bedded down in the same house for a very long period most of the, all my previous life in fact and uh, um Having been not very good in relationships, being a bit of a commitment phobic, um, having looked after my mother with Parkinson's disease or helped look after her, um, I, I allowed myself to become trapped in, in, a, in a way of life in a particular house. Um, and in, in a sense, I hadn't, I hadn't grown up. And when I wrote Nature Cure, you know, I, I, I used the term fledged which is the word young one uses about a bird when it becomes ready to leave the nest. Well, I hadn't done that. And I think it was, you know, I think I'd, I'd come up against the brick wall of saying, well, you know, th th this is stopping me becoming um, a, a fuller person. And uh, I couldn't see a way out of doing that. So I um, became depressed and said, it's very interesting. I, you know, the, um, uh, if you look at this as a, as a zoologist depression, psychiatrists will always talk to you about uh, fight or flight. These are the reactions to stressful things in your life. They seem to forget there is a third option, which is used throughout the living world, um, which is called vegetative retreat. When you can't do fight or flight, you curl up, go into a ball like hedgehogs do. Barn owls faint when they're stressed. They just they, they dip out of the situation. And I think there's a, I know this is in fact neurologically um, similar, that, that uh, depression has clear similarities with, with that uh, state of withdrawal in the natural world when there's a situation that you cannot see a way out of, either fight or flight. So you dip down. It makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a, a, a lot of sense. There's, I often think with like a, a, a breakdown, there's similarities between a breakdown and a breakthrough, right? So sometimes we have to break down to break through. And that, of course, yeah. that's not the case for everyone, but sometimes it's a uh, clear signs that maybe we need to do something different or we need to change something. And it's when sure, we, yeah, yeah. we don't or can't listen to those signs, then we yeah, end up yeah. um, end up forced to, to mm. look at things differently. Yeah. yeah. How did you set about getting better from that Richard because it was a it was a long time wasn't it that you were unwell for and did yeah, you spend sure. some time in in hospital Richard do you mind me asking yes that? I had a couple of spells in in hospital uh, the ironically the um, the same hospital that uh, one of my my writing heroes the poet John Clare um spent about well he spent about 10 17 years in in, in Northampton hospital so it was uh, 
it was funny to go to the same place yeah um i'm not sure how much that helps um except that while it was happening um uh just before it happened my mother died then my sister felt that she wanted to get out and we must sell the house so um matters were brought to a head um uh, as it were outside my control and that was precisely what i needed um because there, there was no there was no kind of escape back to the the old lair where i could just curl up and pretend life was as it was you know um I, I was, in essence, kicked out of home, um, not by any one person, but by the, the circumstances that had happened. So um, I had to begin again, and uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I, I met a, a, a fabulous woman, um, and we, uh, we fell in love and uh, set up house in South Norfolk. And uh, so in a space of, uh, you know, of, of, of leaving my last spell in hospital and becoming a grown-up I mean it all happened in the, in the space of a year so that was very good and, and, and it was precisely what, what you say as uh, as a breakthrough I mean it happened in a rather uh, roundabout zigzag way but uh, it began with me in a blocked situation and it produced um, an element of, of new freedom. It's, um, I think people would probably be um, and I might have this completely wrong, Richard, please tell me if I have, but so people would probably be a little bit um, wide of the mark, right? If they were going to read Nature Cure, which, you know, I have read and thoroughly enjoyed. I, when I started reading it, I thought it was going to be a book about how nature brought you from, back from depression, but that wasn't yeah. really, nature didn't, um, it didn't save you, did it, Richard? That's not really what that book is actually about. Uh, no, 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 not at all. It, it, it's, uh, I, I feel a bit guilty about the title now because I think a large number of people interpreted it as that. Um, what, it, what it really meant was an understanding of nature's own cure for itself. You know, it was about discovering a new landscape in which things cooperated as much as they uh, uh, competed, um, about where beings shared the same sort of trials as I had been through, but also um, found ways of breaking through. Um, so it was about, it was about the, the, you know, the cures inherent in a system, not curing me. And you're absolutely right, when, when, I, when I was ill, I, I couldn't stand nature, what, what it did if I tried to go out. I mean, one of my psychiatrists volunteered to take me out for an afternoon to watch kites, <laughs> which is you know, a little outside the usual therapeutic regime. But uh, I, I knew that, that what I felt when I saw things that I had previously been in raptures about, what I remembered was the state of happiness in which I had seen them. And it completely obliterated the experience you know I wanted to be back feeling like I was when I first saw those birds so yeah it, it didn't work it just it just reminded me of what I'd lost so how, how did the how did the shift start to happen Richard that you felt like you could like take an interest again and start to write about about you know nature again it, uh, it happened so quickly Tom um you know as as soon as I was in I, I wasn't initially in the house I'm speaking to you from now, I was about half a mile on over the other side of the River Waveney in a, a, a really quite large, much more, even more ancient farmhouse than this one is. Um, and I was by myself looking after the house for a friend. 
um, keeping the cats happy, keeping me happy by keeping the cats happy. Um, and I realized that this was actually something quite profound that was happening to me. You know, the place was new. I felt new. I was in a new relationship. And I thought, I got to put this down. So essentially, I wrote Nature Cure in real time um, in that first year as, as it was happening to me. Um, and it, it just flowed. I mean, it was uh, rediscovering how to write um, was the, the best feeling I'd ever had, put it as, as bluntly as that. Yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah, like coming back to you to a part of yourself almost. That, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Hadn't, hadn't seen for a while. I think in the the mental health conversation, I I think that um, nature has become quite fashionable, Richard. Right, and I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that as well. But you know, like it's very interesting to me that you know that it the as someone who has always studied the natural world that it, it that wasn't the case for you that that kind of um, you know that kind of fixed you and nature has got this this kind of you know just go and sit under a tree and everything will be okay type yeah, of, yeah. Um, thing at the moment have you noticed a big shift in that over the last few years do you think oh enormously yeah and um to some extent it it, it really uh, worries and perplexes me you know I, I don't want to discount anybody's experience that this has happened to i know it has i mean i i know all the research i know that wound surgical wounds heal more quickly if you've got a picture of a natural landscape on your hospital room wall and that's amazing and you know I'm delighted that it happens but that that's not how it happens with me and I find it uh, perhaps this is a bit critical I find it slightly odd that um, people's experiences of the natural world can be narrowed down into this idea of being calmed, you know, a single dimensional experience of this fantastically complicated world. For me, um, I, I, it, it, it's like being in any community. There are bits of experiencing nature that do make me feel calm, not half as many as bits that make me feel excited or occasionally uh, depressed or anxious or frightened. I, I go through all the emotions in my experience of connecting with nature that I do with any other community um, and you know there's no way I would recommend it to myself for my mental health I can tell you um, to go out into South Norfolk now to see some of the things that are happening I know this is not nature's fault but it's how nature is encapsulated uh, it's the lens through which we see it uh, you know of intensive factory farming, of a new round of hedge destruction, of entire thousand acre fields covered with single use plastic. Um, uh, it's, it's not good for the, for the mind, I can tell you. So um, I, 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 I would say that I, I've, I've often tried to sort of find a way of putting this, that I think engagement with nature um, is life affirming but I think uh, as, as with any life affirming experience it has to come in full four-dimensional technicolor you know it's uh, it's it's everything everything that the the world itself experiences you should experience through it and I think that's good for you it's it's going to make you very worried at times um, alarmed um, but also moments of ecstasy and joy of sharing 
um, the dramas of life with, with other, other creatures. So I think it's a full rounded experience that people should be looking for, not just as, as you say, and I've said myself, you know, that you use it like a green Prozac, go out into the pretty flowers and all is going to be well. Yeah, I, I love looking at it at, at that way because I think when we talk about nature as a as a, a cure or whatever for um, mental health, it is, like you say, we do only focus on a very small part of it. It tends to be like, you know, a, a forest walk and breathing some fresh air and that's it. But, you know, nature is so much bigger than that and surely the being able to step into yourself and embody the full human experience of all emotions yep. and all of nature well we you, if you're gonna if you want some good ones you've got to have some bad ones that's just how it works right yeah absolutely yeah 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 very much so there was something when we were emailing to kind of put this together Richard there was something that you mentioned as well that I wanted to talk about and it's something I've been talking about on this show a lot it felt like this conversation was kind of um, meant to be but that was the the I think you put it as the medicalizing of uh, normal human emotions and I just wanted to kind of um, explore what you meant by that a little bit Richard if that's Mm. okay well I mean it goes back to what what we were talking about really perhaps at the beginning of this this chat that um I'm, I'm trying to imagine what, what a human being would like, would be like, if they didn't experience periods of, of anxiety, periods of melancholy. It would seem to me that they, they were some kind of blunt, anaesthetized human being, not open um, to the normal range of, of, uh, of emotions that makes us human beings or makes us animals, if you like, because these emotions are shared uh, much more widely than just in our species. So, um, and, and, and it is, uh, I get bothered when I, I hear, particularly of young people who now appear to fear that their mental health is at risk if they're anxious about exams. I mean, why shouldn't one be anxious about exams? Um, they're important things. Anxiety gets you geared up to do well. Um, I know very well that there are multitudes of cases, and they're much more frequent now, where genuine psychiatric harm is being caused by the circumstances in which um, young people are living at the moment, particularly in, in uh, you know, vulnerable households and poor areas of the country. But I, but I sense, uh, you know, an un, uneasy leaking of that condition in, into the ordinary experiences of disappointment, jealousy, whatever. These aren't psychiatric conditions. They're, they're part of what we are as human beings. Yeah, very much so. And to guide us as well. And I think we've, you know, yes, course, quite yeah. often anxiety is, uh, you know, as, as much as it can be uncomfortable, it can also be a, a yeah, sign that yeah, um, yeah. something really good is about to happen, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Um, I, I, you know, if, if, I was, if I was to kind of come, say, is there a, a relationship with nature that is un, unequivocally good, I would use the word attentiveness. And attentiveness is really a very low level anxiety. It's an alert, it's a, it's a situation of alert. And uh, yeah, that, that's most, most of the rest of the living world is in that state the whole time. Um, and to call it, call that anxiety is quite wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way you, you are eager to discover what the world 
is doing and doing to you. That's fascinating, actually, to look at it from the perspective of like other species, because we see ourselves as so different. Right. And we yeah, we, you know, we have evolved further in some ways. And, uh, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages to that. But we see ourselves as as a separate thing. And we're, we're not a separate thing. We're just another species of, you know, or in amongst all the other things. Right. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, if they've got that level of attentiveness and it serves serves them no do you think yeah, i mean um, it's it, 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 it's it's uh, wonderful to me to see that the uh, uh, research that's been going on for gosh a couple of decades now about the um the sensitivity of plants um is leaking out into a wider audience now i'm not for a moment saying that plants are conscious um but they experience um equivalent anxiety of learning things that are going to be dangerous for them and becoming prepared uh, for those challenges. So th these things are, are rooted, these emotions are rooted right in the absolute fundamentals of life. We, they didn't evolve from nowhere, you know, they were being built up as uh, organisms became more complicated and it, yeah. uh, they run right through the living world. Yeah, everything is there because, you know, at some point there was a, a need for it to be there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah very much so. Yeah, it's, um, it's really interesting. I suppose what's really coming through for me is, uh, you know, rather than looking to nature to fix us, right, to go and sit under that tree and wait for everything to go better, it's, it's what we can learn from that world and how it does adapt and adjust and just keep going and you know and how it does react in different ways to different circumstances you know do you think as like as a human species we're like the only species that doesn't doesn't change much for the seasons you know do you think things yeah. like that would benefit us if in in winter if we did yeah. sort of hibernate well, a little bit more well, exactly, and... it, exactly i mean uh, you know it's probably to our, our our mistakes that we don't uh adapt more to the seasons because inside ourselves uh, there are mechanisms which are inherited from our earlier creatures, which do adapt to the seasons. And when we, when we deny that, you know, we we can appearance. Sorry, we can suffer certain sorts of uh, physical um, unease. Um, I mean, it may well be that uh, one of the causes of seasonal affective depression um, is our insistence on going on through the winter as if it was still the summer you know when we haven't got the warmth or the light that uh, we were evolved to need yeah definitely when it you know when it's getting dark at four o'clock and yet we're still then flicking on the um you know the strip lighting the unnatural yeah. lighting to get another couple same. of hours out the day yeah. it's not the same yeah. at all yeah. right yeah do you think then that that's kind of because people talk about reconnecting with with nature which is a, a strange you know i'm not quite sure how i feel about it or what even what it means to be honest it probably means different things to different people but yeah yeah that would be my take on reconnecting with nature is trying to live more uh, like in tune to nature maybe or like to learn from the lessons of of, yeah. of nature you know do, what become, do you an, think? become an attentive listener and an attentive watcher yeah yeah that's right and as you say in tune yeah I, i'm not sure about this uh, reconnecting with nature i mean I, I find it very difficult to know how you could be disconnected from nature i mean each of us is breathing in uh, molecules of oxygen that have been exhaled by trees. Every breath we take, we are connecting with nature. We are nature ourselves. We're built up of, of communities of cells. We have whole ecosystems in our 
in our intestines that are in some ways independent of us and in other ways deeply connected. So, you know, we can't, we can't disconnect. The, uh, the only way you can disconnect from nature is to die. And <laughs> even then you're, you're recycled. So I think, I think it's an unhelpful term, you know. Um, yeah, I suppose through death is, is the ultimate reconnection to nature, right? To go back to the, uh, back to the <laughs> earth for want of a less <laughs> hippie, hippie term there. Yeah. Do you think that sort of the, uh, the pandemic played its part in like how we talk about nature as this green Prozac now? Do you think there was a, did you notice a big shift? I, f- I felt like I noticed a shift. Yeah, yes, there was a shift, um, and I, I noticed it even in myself. You know, I, I would have said I was pretty much tuned in, uh, as you say, your your phrase, attentive. But um, during those months of the first lockdown, I, I felt that I changed gear in my attentiveness. You know, there was an extra level of it. It was partly to do, I think, simply with changing environmental conditions you know there were much less traffic on the road there was much less noise there were no contrails in the sky because so much air traffic had had finished but i think also there was a a psychological thing in that the um the sense of the fragility of human life that was all around us made one made the the life beyond us seem that much more precious Um, so one was in a sense, relieved to see that the trees still came out that spring, uh, you know, that they weren't sharing uh, the despair and misery that we were going through. Yeah, I, th- I think it was probably shocking for a lot of people and, and to, to myself, I suppose, to see it, even though maybe intellectually I understood it, is not only did nature do quite well without us, it seemed to thrive. Yes. Things seemed to get a lot better once we started staying. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. About. yeah I think, uh, yeah. hopefully, yeah, hopefully maybe people realise the, the impact that, that we have we have mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's, but there is... just, just go back to, mm. to one little thing there. It was very interesting also how the... Um, how the word nature itself became uh, quite flexible at that point. I remember Boris Johnson, probably one of the few wise things he managed to say, uh, saying we must be humble in the face of nature. So that in that sentence, he was putting the virus um, inside nature, which of course it, it probably is. But um, you know, in, in in the common parlance. Uh, going back to nature was uh, getting away from things like like viruses. So I think it's it's the it's the imprecision of that word nature itself. I think partly, um, but certainly reconnection with nature that, that is uh, distracting. And I, I I much prefer to talk about the real citizens of nature rather than an abstract green hole. You know, how do you get yeah. on with the spiders in your house and uh, things like that? yeah sure yeah yeah rather than like yeah just drill part take the parts that suit us the nice parts and call them nature and that's the bit we reconnect with and all the rest of it just uh we can forget about that right yeah and i wanted to um i wanted to ask richard sometime in my research for this i read that you at one point owned your own wood is that have i got that right you have you have um i'm i'm uncomfortable with, with with um the idea of owning it though in fact i did i paid money for it and i had the deed so i owned it but i think it's a it's quite weird notion uh to own 16 acres of uh, of wild land you know that had had probably been there since the ice age the 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 original wood so but yes that was a fantastic experience i had it for it was back in the chilterns and uh, i had it for 20 years 
um, until I moved up here, in fact. And uh, we, we ran it as a community wood, uh, a wood for the parish. So uh, anyone was free to come in and, and do within reason what they liked in the place. Um, they helped management manage it, though uh, the management was, was very low key because in, in tune with my philosophy, I, um, I didn't want to interfere too much with what the wood itself might want to do. But we came in and did little bits of thinning um, and uh, it was a fabulous place and a very great experience. And um, I learned a lot. I think the village learned a lot about how, how trees work and, uh, and such like. Um, and and uh, the, 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 the wonderful memories there that I have of it. The, um, on, uh, when was it? On, uh, I can't remember, Ascension Day. That's right, Ascension Day, the, the village primary school, which was the Church of England school, um, used to march across the fields, um, which is about half a mile away from the school to the wood. And they used to have a, um, an outdoor service amongst the bluebells, because this was uh, mid-May, essentially. Day. Um, and I can remember them selling, <laughs> singing all things bright and beautiful. And everyone there getting quite tearful, pagans that we all were, um, at this, this expression of, uh, of Christian transcendence. transcendence. And um, the children were absolutely great in the wood. They, they, uh, they showed huge compassion for everything that lived there while we were be doing grown-up grown up things like getting rid of some of the invasive poplars that a previous owner had planted. Uh, they were forming escort parties for the migrating frogs. And they, they, they were on, uh, the, the frogs would move up the hill to the pond and the children were on either side of this track desperately hoping they could help them <laughs> find their way, which of course they knew perfectly well. So yeah. it, it was a very touching um, sign of not reconnecting, but of, of, of real uh, engagement um, with the natural world in which, in which the kind of the hierarchies began to disappear. You know, we weren't um, in charge. Um, we, 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 we were fellow citizens, we were woodlanders. Um, and, you know, carving out little niche for ourselves alongside the badgers. So it was a great, great time. And I, you know, if, if I hadn't moved up into East Anglia, I would still be very happy to, to have had it. And so much um, of the stuff that you just mentioned there, Richard, is stuff that is really positive for looking after our mental health, being part of a community, mm. working together on a, a common cause, to, uh, spending time and care and attention into doing something positive. These are all like wonderful things, you know, yeah, maybe, sure. you know, maybe there's an element of reconnecting with nature. It's more about, you know, playing our part in, I don't know, I don't want to say looking after it, because again, I know yeah. that you're going to say, leave it to look after itself. But yeah, I think you yeah. know where I'm going with that one. Right? But I think, I think, uh, I think how I just phrased it, that, that we wanted to be fellow citizens of the wood alongside everything else that lived there is it, the closest feeling that we, we had to what we were doing there. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like a very, um, a lovely experience, yeah. And with regards to your own mental health, Richard, how are, how are you now? How are things um, day to day? How are you? Um, how is your mental health? Well, not too bad. Um, I'm really quite old now, so you know, having to endure the um, the maladies of old age of uh, arthritic hips and uh, more fatigue than I used to have, and all kinds of other little things that's far too boring to regale anyone with, but it, which are just common to be experience of, of being being ancient um but i'm still working 
um, much more slowly than I used to. But I mean, the the, the worst thing is um, not being able to get about as much as I used to. I mean, um, uh, I, I've got some mild mobility issues, which means I can't walk great distances, and this is a great uh, great so source of frustration to me. Um, so I, I tend to kind of drive around and park myself in in a place and just go for little strolls, but that's that's not enough for me, and I, I wish I could get back to how yeah. I used to go. But you know, that's it. That's yeah. That's um. That's the journey, I suppose, Richard. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you have any, or have you had over the years any um in a mental health conversation like self care is like a really big word that gets banded around, you know, and that looks different for all of us. But did you have any strategies that worked for you if you were having a, a challenging time or a rough patch or anything that you're no, I'm, going I'm... to? I'm not really good with um, with things like that. I, I I tend just to to muddle my way through. I'm afraid I, I I I haven't got that that sort of discipline. I mean, I'm hopeless at doing things like exercise. I'm, I'm fabulous when I used to be able to walk 15 miles in a day, but I mean, doing an exercise regime is not in my um, my constitutional <laughs> repertoire. So you know, similarly, um, actually, even even though I was taught. Uh, CBD, CBT techniques and things when I was uh, in hospital, um, and occasionally I've I've found them useful. Um, it, in in all honesty, it's not the way I I deal with a bad patch. You know, I just uh, I get through. Wait for the storm to pass. Yeah. Are you um Are you working on anything at the moment, Richard? Are you writing at the moment? Yeah, I've I've had a um, I've had a quite sort of rich winter in in work terms because um my my dear old and now sadly late friend the great ronald blythe who was uh, suffolk's certainly greatest modern writer um and i'd known him for 50 years he died in in january uh, aged 100 wow and uh just before this uh well before his 100th birthday there was a lot of uh, celebration and a wonderful collection of his uh, his diary columns published as a book and I wrote quite a long introduction for that and I've been doing other things um, around the celebration of his life which needed you know, a fair amount of writing so that's been been rewarding to look back at a, a you know a very dear friend like that and try and say something uh, lasting and valuable about him um, and I'm trying to do a little book now which is the uh, slightly philosophical um and it's going very very slowly <laughs> so once the winter's gone i mean it's uh, uh I, again one of the things i'm oversensitive to is is uh, bad weather in winter so um once we have a bit more light and warmth i think it will speed up yeah uh, do you have a, a routine for writing richard do you like you know some people nine to five it some people um, I, I, as I, and I, when it i used to tom yeah you know when 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 i was more fluent and more energetic. I certainly had a routine, which was um, I worked in, in the morning till lunch, went out for a walk early afternoon and then did another session before supper. Um, that's not really how it works now. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I write in the moments when I feel like it, which is very lazy, lazy and slack, but I, I plead age. <laughs> That's a justification for uh, for such a sloppy routine. Some is getting done, so that's the main thing. Yeah, well, it sounds like a nice way to do it. I, I mean, mean one, more than one, earn the right. 
one of the C, one of a, a kind of CBT technique I would use positions like this is to break the work down into very small achievable tasks so that you can tick off instead of aiming for a thousand words a day which I used to you know if I can tick off a little 200 word section um, in a day I'm happy yeah I was uh, life is about achievable goals for me that's how I that's how yeah, I manage yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm all for that in, in all life I think no, yeah. not 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 uh, not uh, not the great um, uh, striving for your dreams. That's that's all right if you're sixteen, but I think um... I, I my when my kids were really, I mean they're still quite small, but when they were really small, after we started with our family motto, and if we were like struggling with a routine or something, we should was supposed to be a certain way, and it wasn't. We my wife and I used to look at each other and say, "How hard do we want our life to be?" And that's become, that's our now our family motto. And if anything is feeling particularly challenging, I just think, do yeah. I need to do this? How hard do I really want my life to be? You know, yeah. and that served me well. That's good. Richard, thank you so much. Um, I wish you all the best with that. And thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate you joining me. It's been a great pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. big up to the proper mental podcast a proper mental podcast <laughs>